Welcome again to the Money Mentors Podcast. My name is Glenn Fairburn and I co-host this program with my colleague Nathan Lear. We're both directors and private client advisors at Hewson Private Wealth, which is one of Australia's leading independent financial planning and wealth management firms. Um, the Victorian election was over the weekend um, and it was a bit of a landslide victory for the Labor Party, which is having a number of observers sort of point to a more than likely um, Labor victory on the federal side, which is um, looking as though it might be middle to late next year. Um, as a result of that, Nathan and I thought this week would have a bit of a chat about some of the other labour policies which um, could affect investments um, and, and financial markets. Uh, we did talk about the imputation credit proposal a couple of weeks ago, but we thought we'd just look at a few of the other proposals and just go through the pros and cons of each um, and, and look at how it may impact um, you as our listeners. Um, just to remind everyone, the discussions we're having really just of a general nature, so make sure um, that you speak to your advisor before acting on anything that we're talking about. Uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the podcast. So uh, Glenn, we usually like to talk about uh, things that are topical uh, in in the marketplace, and I suppose on the on the weekend we had the Victoria state election, um, where where Dan Andrews dominated, I suppose, for the Labor Party. Um, I guess regaining his position as state premier. So it was a bit of a a bit of a I guess whitewash victory where um, holding a, all the votes haven't been counted yet, but I think he's got roughly double uh, double the seats that that the Liberal Party have. So um, yeah, bit of a probably a bit of an unexpected um, victory. Now probably the probably the um, sorry not unexpected the victory. Of the, the victory might have been a little bit the size. Sorry, some. so yeah. I think I think Labor were expected to win. Sorry, correct myself there, but the I guess the um, the, the the amount of seats they've picked up was was unexpected. So um, I guess the reason we wanted to have a chat about this is from from an investment perspective. So with Labor, uh, I guess winning so so dominantly. You could argue that strengthens their position for the the federal election, which is um, uh, likely to be it's probably this time next year, mid to mid to late two thousand nineteen. I think people are talking. Yep. with dates. So a year or so away, maybe a bit more than a year. Um, so yeah, with with Labor, I guess having a stranglehold, um, they've got a couple of you know quite quite highly publicized policies that um, they're looking to to implement if they if they get through to power so I just want to spend a few minutes talking about those more from an investment perspective um, so before we get into those Glenn was there anything else you had from from the uh, observations from the weekend or? no and look I, I think we'd be the first to say to, to our listeners that we're not saying that you know this the state election um, result from Victoria is an indication as to what might happen at a federal level but it's probably a, a, a fair um, thing to look at as far as trying to predict what may happen at the federal level. Um, and, and, and look, I mean, the reason why we're talking about these policies isn't necessarily to have um, a positive or negative view on, on labor policy or anything like that. It's more so that I suppose that the, the liberal um, government hasn't really announced any policies at this stage. Um, and, and we've had a lot of clients asking us about these sorts of policies. And as you said earlier on, Nathan, what, what we try and do with this podcast is obviously educate our listeners, um, but also answer questions in a broader sense, 
perhaps to what we're answering our clients on a, on a day-to-day basis So looking at what what are our clients asking us what, what would the general public or what would most people be interested to hear about um, and as we did on episode 53 we spoke about um, the policy regarding the refund of excess imputation credits that's been a very widely publicized um, po- policy um, and has far-reaching implications um, so I, I suppose you know as, as you were alluding to uh, we, we're keen just to talk about a few of the other um, proposals that impact our industry um, and which may impact you know our listeners or investors in general yeah and most of our clients will have an investment portfolio so they're they're investors and and we're going to touch on on four of labor's policies today which uh, all affect investors so um, yeah not that we're necessarily going to be strong either way in them it's more about just discussing them there there is there's no guarantee that labor are going to win the federal election uh, even if they do win the federal election, they still need to get these policies through the through the Senate. So there's once again, there's no guarantees. But um, if you want to be, I guess, across you know potential changes to legislation and how that might affect your investment portfolio, it's a probably a good thing to have a little discussion about. So the just to quickly introduce the four things we'll talk about. One of them we've spoken about in episode 53, but we'll, we'll just mention it again briefly. Um, so Glenn, you mentioned the the imputation credits, the potential change there. Um, the second one um, is around family trusts, the tax treatment of family trusts. Um, the third one is around negative gearing. Um, and the fourth one is around the capital gains ta- tax discount. So there's four there. Where would you like to start, Glenn? Happy to, happy to throw um, off you to start with one. Well, well let, let's start with, I suppose, one of the more well-known things, which is the negative gearing. Sure. Yep. So for, for those who, who don't know, I mean, ne- negative gearing is where an individual or what can, can be any structure would borrow money for investment purposes um, and obviously as a result of those borrowings you incur an interest cost now where that interest cost exceeds the income that you're receiving obviously you incur a loss um, that loss can be used as a deduction in your annual tax return and that's where negative gearing is so negative gearing simply means that the interest that you incur as a result of your investment loan exceeds the income um, that you're receiving from your investment. And I suppose where that becomes a benefit for investors who are implementing this sort of strategy, whether they're borrowing to buy an investment property or whether they're borrowing to buy a portfolio of shares or whatever it may be, is that the tax benefit they get um, from the loss that they're incurring um, as a result of their interest cost can go towards helping them assist that funding of the loan. Is that a pretty fair yeah, yeah. sort of explanation of that? Sure. Um, so I suppose removing... So what Labor's proposing is that you'll still be able to claim a deduction for the interest that you incur with your borrowings. Um, so you might have a situation where an investment's positively geared. So positively geared just means that the income you're receiving from your geared investment is more than the interest cost. Um, so in that situation, you can still claim a deduction for the income. You may also have a neutrally geared investment where the interest that you're incurring from your loan is equal to the income. That's still okay. So it's only when the interest exceeds your income where it goes into negative territory where you can't claim the amount beyond that neutrally geared scenario. Um, so so that, that's, I suppose, the change. So the question is, what are the implications of that? Is it a good policy? Um, what does, and what does that mean for investors? Sure. So, Glenn, why, what's your understanding of why this policy is looking to be brought in? 
Well, I think like all the policies, it's all about, um, I suppose, improving the the budget outcome. I, I um, think, I think yes, like correct all policies are there to do that. But I think this one, it's no secret that housing afford housing affordability is a key reason they're yeah. looking to bring in this policy. Well, that's what they're saying. That, that's what has been has been, I guess, mentioned. Um, which, yes, you could argue that that this policy would potentially uh, maybe slow down investors if they don't get the negative gearing benefit. So slow slow down demand um, for property, which could slow down price growth or bring them down, which could make housing more affordable. So is that argument that by removing the tax benefit attached to borrowing for investment, it increases the cost of, of that investment and therefore people might not be as attracted towards buying investment property? Yep, arguably. Which therefore takes demand, some demand out of the market? I, I think, yes, it'd be naive to think that that wouldn't happen. And um, I suppose, I mean, yeah, what are the flow-on effects we've spoken about, I guess, in when we spoke about the, the franking credit changes, uh, what the flow-on effects could be? And I think one of the things that I've thought about with this policy in terms of flow-on effects is um, we've already seen some, some changes implemented, um, some regulatory changes implemented that have already put the handbrakes on property, uh, in particular Melbourne and Sydney markets, um, around you know borrowing standards and whatnot that have slowed down yeah. the market, which maybe is not a bad thing. Um, arguably, it's a good thing. Who, who knows? It's, that's up for debate. Uh, but this is a, a policy that, you know, if it does a secondary um, slow down impact on the property market. I just, I guess, one thing that worries me is that I just hate if it caused a hard landing to the, yeah, to property prices. I think it's like all these things. What you can, you know, a policy can be introduced for a specific purpose, but it's then what are the flow on effects? And I think that's what obviously we're, we're keen to talk about today. Not not just looking at what the outcome for a particular policy is, but what are the possible implications mm-hmm. of that policy. And also um, interest rates, like just quickly mentioned, Glenn, interest rates. And um, I mean, that's probably the the other thing looming for property prices, which everybody knows that if interest rates start going up, it, up, it probably will slow down demand for, for property. Yeah, so Again, you could have three things. So there could be like three for- forces working against property. I don't, I don't think a, a property crash is good for any economy. Um, you know, we saw what it did to you know, many states in the US around 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think, that's been a, a really good wealth creation tool for many Australians is, is property. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm more than anyone want, want property to be affordable. Don't get me wrong. I want it to be extremely affordable, but I just hope that... Um, it has stars- to be balanced, doesn't it? You don't want affordability increasing on one side, but then wealth being decimated on the other side, do you? Which could then have other flow-on effects Which where has it's slowing then, yeah. down. I mean, because when, when, when the value of your property rises, you've got... There's a wealth effect there. You've got more wealth. You'd be more inclined to more inclined to um, maybe borrow money to put more money into renovations or spending money on whatever it might be, which is good for an economy. So, mm. um, you know, if values of properties fall significantly, that could have an impact on you know, spending in the economy, which I'm sure wouldn't be good for an economy at all, would it? Yeah, and look, I, th- I suppose you also you also need to look at um, where most you know. D- uh, 35% of properties are investments. So in that situation, that's where people have gone out and bought an investment property. So it's roughly a third, a third. Just rule of thumb, it's a bit different, but a third, a third, a third, isn't it? So a third investment properties, yeah. third owner-occupied um, with no debt, and a third 
live in it with, with debt. Yeah, so you, you, wonder, you wonder whether, you know, yes, it may help with housing affordability, but does it then remove the renters market? Like if there aren't as many investment properties being purchased, does that then remove the supply of properties that are available to renters? Because I know there has been some discussion around perhaps still being able to negatively gear for new housing, um, mm. obviously because they're very conscious of not slowing housing constructions and the impacts that they may, that may have on the economy. So they're looking at that, but they're not looking perhaps at the wider impact um, on, on housing. Um, and, and look, I suppose... And just on that, before you change the topic on that, so just to kind of go a bit deeper into that affecting renters, do you mean that less, less people would own investment properties? Yeah, so like for, I mean, as we were saying, I mean, might push the, up rents. Twenty percent of households own an investment property, so one in five households own an investment property or a second property. Yeah. Now, someone's living in that property, so for people who um, look, maybe they can't afford properties because of the price of of the market at the moment, um, but maybe they they've made the choice to to rent. How how does the removal of negative gearing, where people probably aren't as incentivized to go out and buy investment properties? How does that then affect the renter's market? Does it reduce the supply of rental properties? Possibly reduces supply. Also, could put could upward upward pressure on rents. Yeah, as well. exactly. That, if, that, that, um, that's the, I suppose one of the key points. Because if if a if a rental property investor is losing their tax benefit, um, they might try to recoup that loss with high rent. Well, that that that's the flow on effect, isn't it? Because. Mm. You know, in that situation where you've, you know, you're an investor, you've borrowed money to buy an investment property. Um, th- there's probably two streams of revenue that you, that can help you service that loan. One's one is obviously the income that you're receiving, or the rental income you're receiving from the tenant. Um, the second thing is the tax benefit that you receive um, from holding that property. Now, if you're not getting the tax benefit anymore, you still want to be able to fund the repayments. Now, you either need to find that from your own cash flow or increase. The rents that you're charging so that i mean that's a good point i mean that's probably one of the flow on effects of removing negative gearing is that the cost of investment increases and someone bears that cost so um, housing might be more affordable but, but rents go rents up. could go up and you could argue that the battlers would probably benefit from more affordable rents yeah lower rental that is going to continue renting yeah. Yeah. um yeah definitely something to to think about but can i mean we've sort of spoken about it fairly generically at this stage um, I mean, can you see any benefits from this, from this policy? We, we've probably focused a little bit on the negatives, but to give a balanced view, can you see benefits? I mean, do you think that it potentially could take the investors out of the market, which therefore takes you know, that excessive demand out of the market, therefore pushes prices down? Is, is that arguably, a fair argument? Arguably, it, it could do what it's intended to do and make housing more affordable. Yeah, yep. But do you think... Like I know we've had discussions about this internally as far as how do you create wealth. Now, if you're looking at the ultra-wealthy, that they can borrow for investment. Because essentially, when you're looking at borrowing for investment, the tax we, we always say to our clients, the tax benefit's really just an added bonus. The reason you borrow to invest is to, I suppose, bring forward your investment time frame. So instead of saving all your money to buy that property over 10 years, borrow the money and invest now. So you get the benefit of the growth over a 10-year period and you can also invest a larger amount. Um, so for people trying to accumulate wealth, um, arguably those who perhaps aren't as wealthy 
um, and really want to get a kickstart. This this is a way for them to do that, isn't it? Because it helps them service that loan. So it, it has been a very effective wealth accumulation strategy, not just for the wealthy, but also low to middle income earners, hasn't it? Yeah, which leads into exactly the point I was going to say that um, two-thirds um, two-thirds of those who deduct net rental losses um, from from wage and salary, which is known as negative negative gearing, have a taxable income of $80,000 or less. Yeah, so this isn't a strategy just for the wealthy, is it? Definitely not. So um, it's been a way that you could argue that people on more modest um, incomes have been able to uh, access... Afford, yeah, afford to borrow the money because they get a little tax benefit um, which helps them helps, pay the loan so they can the buy debt. property. So, so, and this has been a great wealth creation tool for Australians for many, many years now. Um, and it could be something, yeah, that could potentially be taken away from from Australians. I, I don't. I think it, you know, was initially sold as, um, you know, going to impact the the rich, but it's probably going to impact more the, you know, the people on more modest. Yeah, more middle class salaries, perhaps. And initially, when when you asked me about what what's the motivation behind it, I, I did say about raising revenue. But you know, when you think about it, at the moment, because interest rates are so low, it's actually the, the negative gearing outcome isn't as extreme because obviously, if you're getting a certain level of rental income and your interest cost is low, it's actually hard to negatively gear right now because interest rates are so low. So, I don't think the cost to the government right now. Without having the figures in front of me, is that substantial? Um, yeah, when 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 rates are at six or seven percent, people are making much more better yeah. use of the tax deduction. Yeah, yeah. So look, I think on that note, it is a it's a policy that's being introduced for it's got a number of motivations behind it. Um, but like the other things that we'll be talking about, it's it's more so our concern would be what what are the what are the um, unexpected outcomes or what are the unintentional outcomes of, of this sort of policy yeah I, I probably just get worried about the timing of it I, I don't just with with the changes that have been put in by the regulator slowing down credit growth that's had an impact with you know interest rates potentially uh, uh, on the way up eventually when that comes we don't know I just worry that a third policy could just you know, tip it over the edge maybe tip property a little bit in the wrong direction and nobody wants to see a hard landing for property prices because that's yeah, not going to be good for anyone. So, no. um, okay, so that's the that's the the first one: uh, negative gearing, um, potential policy change that Labor would look to bring in. Um, maybe we'll we'll turn our attention now to the the capital gains tax um, discount. So, at the moment, um, if you sell an investment, um, whether it's you know, property shares, whatever it might be, um, if you own the asset for more than twelve months. Um, 50% of the gain is discounted, so you only pay tax on half of the gain. Um, this is being proposed to come down from 50% down to 25%. Um, Glenn, any any uh, starting comments? Uh, it's, it's an interesting one because, I mean, it really depends how you view taxation. I mean, from, from my perspective, you know, I, I sort of ask myself, okay, you know, you, you've bought an asset, you, you've held it for a period of time, you've sold it for more, um, than what you paid for it is that income if it's income then under the current regime why in that situation do you get a 50 percent discount whereas if you earned a dollar of income you'd be paying 47 percent tax so it's one of those things that you know without understanding tax law and understanding capital versus income um, when you put it in that way you can almost understand 
Well, you, you probably question why was the 50% discount introduced to begin with? Well, I mean, I think we had arguably slightly different views on this and I'm happy to talk about that. But I, one of the reasons, I, I, it, it, I guess it's an incentive for people to invest. If they, if they know that, you know, if you in, invest and have a big capital gain and it's all going to be taxable income, you know, you can, you can lose a lot depending on your tax rate. You know, you can lose a lot of that in, in taxation where if you do get that 50% discount uh, it does encourage people to invest and you know, I think I've, I've mentioned it a few times and even on the the last podcast we spoke about the franking credit so I um, that's one of my concerns with a few of these policies it's going to discourage investment so I think that to answer that question why was it brought in initially I think it was brought in to promote investing because that's where people can create a lot of wealth from yeah from and I suppose that that's where that that's that's why the um, 12 month rule was was I suppose brought in as well because you know, you don't want the same discount applying to people who are sort of buying and selling on a day-to-day Trade, basis. Trading, yeah. Um, but do you think, on, on the flip side of that, do you think that the removal, like it's not the removal, it's just a reduction in the discount. So there's still a discount there. So there's still an incentive yep. to, to obviously buy investments. Do you think perhaps it removes or it could remove the volatility in the market because people are more encouraged to buy and hold, whether that's a good thing or not? Oh, you could look at it that way. You could also look at it the other way as well, where it could create a little bit more uncertainty in the share market because people are like, my returns are going to be uh, impacted now if I sell investments. I might be, you know, less inclined to want to buy. So it could, it, possibly, it's hard to answer that. Yeah, and look, I suppose there's there's other ways that you can look to minimize capital gains tax. You know, some we've had situations, and and this is where you need to remove the tax um, implications from market conditions because. Ideally, you would hold on an asset and sell it at a point where your tax rate is lower. So perhaps when you're moving into retirement, but that may not work from a market perspective. Um, but I, I think this particular policy, do, do you think that that's really around revenue raising as opposed to negative gearing, which is perhaps more so focused on housing affordability, which is obviously a pretty hot topic or has been for a long period of time. Do, do you think that the reduction in the CGT or the capital gains tax discount is all around revenue raising? Oh, I think yes, and, and also perhaps a um, bit of politics maybe as well to try and secure more votes. And how do you think they're going to secure more votes? Just oh, well, taxing you know, rich, rich people invest so on us against them sort of mentality? Oh, possibly. I mean, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a bit of that in there, in there, in there as well. Okay. Ultimately, probably revenue-based. but And the impact on the property market? Would this have a big? I'm not sure if this would have a huge impact on, on property in the share market. Maybe maybe marginal. Well, I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to know, isn't it? Like yeah, sentiment I mean, would it change sentiment? I, I, don't, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I, not that I could think of a standard to be corrected, but you know, there's still I think by reducing as opposed to removing that discount probably has less of an impact. You only pay it if you sell it too. Yeah, well, that's that's what I was saying before. I mean, you only pay that tax when you sell it. So is there? A greater incentive to buy and hold investments potentially, which isn't a bad thing, is it? No, I mean from a from I mean we sort of subscribe to that. So long as the investments of good quality, you're probably better off buying and holding. And I suppose for the naive investor who tends to panic in the short term and maybe follow the herd, it, it may may be a better outcome. Um, and and look, I suppose that in that situation, that's where you really need to look at the structure that you own investments because. You know, it, it may mean that as a result of this, you you have a greater emphasis on superannuation, where there's still the potential where you don't you won't pay any capital gains tax. So, with all these things, they're still yeah. speculative at the moment. Um, they're not 
they're not um, legislated. They're still just you know policy discussions. Um, but obviously, you'd need to talk to your accountant or your your advisor about you know the right structures and how how do you best counter um, the, these policies. Sure. So the next one is the potential change to taxation on family trusts, where um, a, a minimum rate of tax of thirty percent would be applied on on any distribution. So just to quickly introduce this one, a, a family trust can be beneficial to stream income to to beneficiaries on lower tax rates. So, uh, for example, if you're um, if you're employed, earn a salary, and then have some investments um, within a family trust, rather than though the, the investment income on those investments being applied at your higher marginal tax rate, you might be able to stream to other beneficiaries such as spouse or children that might be on lower tax rates where they might pay tax at either, you know, the first $18,000 is tax-free if they're an adult, so potentially zero tax. So it works pretty effectively for um, adult children, doesn't it? Like at uni that might be studying, yep. not maybe not working at all. Um, and as you were saying, you've, you've got a pool of investments in a trust that's earning a certain level of income you may not necessarily want that income taxable in the parent's name if they're both working so there is the means where you can distribute where you've got discretion to distribute to you know one two or more children and make use of those tax-free thresholds so it is a very tax tax effective strategy isn't it definitely even even um you know the spouse if there's a um you know a married couple one of them works one of them doesn't work um you know investment income can be streamed to the, the member of that couple that doesn't work so mm. there can be a much better tax outcome so um yeah so under the this the proposed policy the the minimum tax on any distribution would be would be 30 percent. so it would definitely um once again disinvent disincentivize investing in in that trust structure wouldn't it oh i think it definitely in disincentivizes the use of, of a structure um and, and look all these things are really difficult because once someone has something and gets used to it, it's always hard taking it away, isn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's a real. It, I think this one in particular is a real tough one because if you're purely looking at raising revenue, then yeah, this is this is a way where potentially it is the wealthy have used this arrangement to minimise their taxation, um, and whether that's the right thing to do or not at the moment, look, it, it is it is possible to do that. I mean, it's not illegal to use a, a, a family trust. Um, to you know, distribute income to other bit or split income amongst other beneficiaries. Um, as to what the implications are, is it a good policy? Is it a bad policy? Well, people who are using trusts and are, and are saving thousands of dollars in tax, well, for them it's a bad policy. But people who aren't using it, they're probably indifferent, aren't they? I mean, I, I don't know how you answer. I don't know how you sort of look at the pros and cons because for some people, um, I think there's 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 significant costs. But for others, probably the masses, there isn't. I think as you said earlier, Glenn, it would just make other structures more attractive. Superannuation is, is obviously one where people might look to move wealth into super if they can, subject to contribution caps or even the the ownership entity of, 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 of where the investments are being, um, whose name they're invested in. So maybe um, if you're making use of a family trust and it's the tax might go up to 30%, well, maybe you can transfer... Um, the asset investment out of the trust into the individual's name if they're on a, yeah. a lower marginal tax rate. Yeah, and look, we, we've got clients who use that structure. But it, I mean, to give our discussion a balanced view, if we, if we were um, members of the Labor Party selling this particular policy, would they be saying that this sort of arrangement is generally 
used by higher income earners? Would that be fair to say? I think, look, without having any statistics to back this up, I'd, I think, yes, arguably, I'd say that uh, yeah. that's correct. I mean, in, in our experience, it's mainly used by individuals who are perhaps buying shares in a private company that they might be employed by or that they are part owners in where they can use that trust structure to purchase the shares. And, and I suppose the primary motivation in that sort of arrangement is asset protection because it, does, it can provide some asset protection. Um, but it's mainly used by business owners and, and investors, isn't it? And you would only use it if your tax rate was high, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the implications of that, th- this is probably one that's not going to get <laughs> that much support, I don't think. But um, whether whether it's a fair strategy, whether, whether it's a fair proposal or not, um, it, that's for each person to make their own judgment call, I think. Sure. So, and just to... You know, for completeness, the the fourth policy we touched on earlier is just around the franking credits. Um, the I guess the change we we spoke about that uh, exclusive, or I guess we dedicated a whole podcast to that in in episode fifty three. So I'm not sure whether you wanted to touch on that any further, Glenn. Or we'll just... oh, look, I, I think it's it's worthwhile for our listeners to go back and and listen to that episode just to get the greater amount of detail. Um, I'll throw my two cents in. I mean, I, I was just chatting to clients before. I think the people who are most hurt by this proposal, which is the removal of, of excess um, imputation credits, are those that just miss out on the pension. Because if you look at someone right now, let's just say they've got $850,000, they're not getting the pension. But at the moment, they're getting their refund of imputation credits. And let's just assume that that's $6,000 a year. Okay, If this proposal becomes law, then they'll still miss out on the age pension. And because of that, they'll also miss out on that $6,500. So what's their incentive to, to self-fund? I mean, in, I, I use this example. I mean, they're better off saying, well, I'll take $100,000 out of my super put, put fund. Put in their family home or something. Put it in their family home or spending e- it on a holiday. Not exempt. So it's, so it's exempt from yep. asset testing. They get, they get a part pension. And as a result of that, you know, they might get, let's just say it's $1,000 a year in pension. So they get that. They get the added added benefits, which arguably are worth a couple of thousand dollars each, you know, with cheaper rates, rego, you know, car registration and so forth. And then they get their imputation credits back. So in so the, the end... The government's forking out more money yeah. in that example. Well, in the end, they've spent $100,000. And under that example I was using, they've got their $6,000 imputation credits. They're roughly... Let's just say... We'll be conservative and say that the pension concession card's worth 3000 So that's 9000 and maybe they're getting $1,000 in pension. So they're getting a $10,000 increase in their income by spending $100,000. That's 10% return. So where's the incentive to self-fund? That's my concern. I think those are the people who are going to be hurt most by this. But in that situation, Glenn, if you're, if you're, if you're the government and that client spends $100,000 to lower their assets, the government, I think $4,000 roughly now is what it's costing them when it was costing them nothing before. That's right. So it's actually going to be, could be the un- unintended consequence of that policy. It could be a cost to the social security system. Yeah, and, and look, I know that the um, CPAs um, pr- provided a sort of a, a discussion paper or proposal where they're, they're, they're suggesting there should be a cap on the refund of 20000 Now, I think that... That's not a bad idea because that helps those sorts of people. I just fear for the fact that it's the self-funded retirees that have saved just enough money, which means they're not eligible, 
um, that aren't a drain on the social security system are going to be hurt by this. And we all know it's going to happen. They're, they're going to spend their money because there's no what's, what's the intent, incentive. As I said, they can get a 10% return on money they spend. So you're spending the money and you're getting $10,000 a year more. Um, or what, the other thing that's going to happen is they're just going to progressively draw down on, on their capital, which means they're eventually going to go on the age pension anyway. So yes, saving a few dollars here could probably cost them a lot more in future without going into great detail around that because I know we discussed it in episode 53. That's my biggest issue with it. Yeah, and wealthy people don't really benefit from the refund of imputation credits. They, they make use of the offset because they've got a higher uh, tax rate across the board so they can use the offset. So they're not, um, not going to be affected. Ultra-wealthy yeah. people are not affected by, by when this change comes in. So yeah. once again, it's going to... In that example you used, it's going to inf- uh, impact more people on more modest yeah. wealth that that aren't that are self-funding but have too much to get a, a an age pension. And look, you can you can understand. I mean, we're moving into a, a period where you know we've got an aging population. The number of taxpayers is reducing. The, you can understand. Look, the government needs to raise revenue. There's no debate around that. We need to, you know, raise revenue for infrastructure um, to support those who who need the support. Um, you know, schools, hospitals, all those yep. sorts of things. We're not sure. debating that. Not at all. Um, yep. But I mean, I, I just think that there are better ways to do it um, as opposed to that particular policy, which you don't want to hurt those people or remove the incentive for people to try and self-fund because as time goes by into the future, as the baby boomers move into that age bracket where a lot of them will be retired and as the next generation retires, when we keep getting told it's an aging population, Where's the tax revenue going to come from to support all these people if pensions continue increasing? It's going to, that's going to be the biggest issue longer term. And that's all I would really ask both sides of politics. And they've both done it. I mean, the Liberal Party's changed superannuation a lot as well. Um, so they're not innocent in all this. Um, they've made a lot of changes to superannuation, which has removed the incentive or the encouragement for people to put money into superannuation. So they're not, they're not sort of out there not doing anything either. Um, I think that we, as I said, we keep getting told that an aging population, how about providing an incentive for people to save for retirement? And that doesn't mean that um, it becomes this sort of gravy train where it's tax-free income and so forth. But I just think there's a better way than with this particular proposal. Mm. So, and look, just to kind of add to that, uh, just a a couple of things. I've already said this a couple of times, but... um, My my biggest kind of fear, a few of these policies might discourage investment. and, And I... And investment has been a great wealth creation tool, I think, for anybody. I, I think you can be a more modest income earner and still invest. I mean, some of our some of our most successful investor clients have come from modest salaries and they're, they're disciplined. They put a bit of money away. You don't have to be, you know, earning huge salaries to, to be an investor. I think, you know, the best time to invest is when you're young and, you know, you can be earning a modest salary and start investing. So that's probably the one thing that I kind of just worry about. Hopefully it doesn't cause too much um, instability in, in investment markets, the share market and the property market. Um, you know, we've got a progressive tax system where, you know, the more you earn, um, the more tax you pay. And, you know, we're not a low, low tax paying country. We're probably up there in one of the highest tax rates in the world. So, um, of course, you know, just to kind of echo what you said, Glenn, you know, we definitely support the people that need um, the support to get it, you know, education and disability scheme and things like that but um yeah we just you know we we wanted just to talk about this more from an investment perspective because it does impact a lot of our clients that are investors 
Um, and yeah, look, hopefully, hopefully have a have a balanced view, but at the same time, you know, try to put forward, um, you know, some of the impacts we think that it can have on markets. So, um, thanks again for for listening, and we look forward to having you next week. Thanks everybody for listening again to another episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Um, if you enjoy the the content, please do subscribe to the podcast um, via um, any good po- podcasting app. Um, once again, please check out our major sponsors website, Hewison Private Wealth. Um, so just just search for Hewison Private Wealth online. Also check out Hewison Private Wealth's um, social media channels, Facebook. LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, Thanks again. We'll see you next week.